After a brief little hiatus, Write You a Song is back. And I want to thank everybody for checking in and asking, hey, where's the show been? When's it going to return? I'm kidding. Nobody did that. But you know what? I don't care because I like doing it, and that's all that matters, which also happens to be the attitude of singer-songwriter John Rich. This month's guest as Write You a Song returns. I'm Tom Maley, and John Rich, of course, came to Nashville in the late 1990s as part of the band Lone Star. He left them, tried his hand at a solo career. It didn't really go anywhere, but he hung around Nashville writing songs until he ran into this guy named Kenny Alphen, a.k.a. Big Kenny. think you know the rest of the story. They formed Big and Rich, and it became a genre-busting duo that knocked Nashville back on its boot heels when they released their debut album, Horse of a Different Color, in 2004. It was loud, swaggering, mixing country, rock, hip-hop, and even a little gospel in a way never heard before, especially in Nashville, where record companies tend to err on the cautious side of things. It created a tectonic shift in country music that is still sending out aftershocks today. But even as Big and Rich were blasting into the stratosphere, some of the over 800 songs that John Rich had compiled between gigs went on to become huge chart toppers for others. John Rich was named ASCAP Songwriter of the Year in 2005, 2006, and 2007. First time any songwriter had ever done that three years consecutively. Rich has maintained a high profile in country music ever since, and elsewhere, too. From club ownership to TV news talk shows, he's not vague with his opinions, and he's quick to give them, and you're going to enjoy the next half hour, especially if you're a young singer and or songwriter who wants the keys to Nashville handed to him straight. John, I want to start, like, literally at the very beginning. What were you like as a kid? Were you a real imaginative kid? I know you were musical, but did you also have, were you just really creative from an early age? Well, I had to be pretty creative because I lived in Amarillo, Texas, on the outskirts of Amarillo, which if you've never been there, there's not a lot of reasons to go there. I'll put it to you that way. It's mm-hmm. flat as a board. Uh, the wind blows about 40 to 50 miles an hour every single day. And, uh, you know, unless you're into uh, farming or cattle or something like that, that, you know, those are the main industries around there. So as a kid, uh, I was all about, you know, I would do dumb stuff like get my buddy and uh, get trash can lids and bows and arrows, never thinking that the arrow would actually go through a trash can lid because it will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so stuff like that, just a knothead, knucklehead. But, but uh, you know, my my greatest hobby was to play a guitar. My dad's a preacher, played guitar in church, sang in church, really good singer, and uh, taught me really young how to play. And you uh, have an amazing singing voice, but your songwriting is is so incredibly creative too. You, obviously, you know from an early age that you can sing. Did you know from an early age that you could write? No. What prompted me to write was probably what prompts everybody to write at some point, and that's girls. Ah. So, <laughs> you know, the guys I was around anyway. So, you know, uh, when I was about. 15, 16, uh, there was a girl who was dating a football player. Of course, I'm not big enough to be on that football team. 
but I wanted to get her attention one way or the other. And so I wrote a song about her, dropped it in her locker. And guess what happened? Hey, I've got a date with this girl now. <laughs> upset the football, upset the football guy. But, uh, but that's okay. I, I learned, wow, this, this, uh, this, this songwriting thing is powerful. It can unlock the door. And that, that's what, that's what got me interested in it. I'm always fascinated by um, artists and songwriters, and, and, and it's usually the case. I mean, we all have to come from someplace, and a lot, of, a lot of those places are small towns far, far removed from the glitz and glamour of a, of a Nashville. Um, and I remember I grew mm-hmm. up in the Pacific Northwest, and like any kid that went to L.A. and went to Disneyland over the summer, they'd come back and it was like they visited Oz. It just seemed like something that was so <laughs> otherworldly to us. And I, I got to imagine where you grew up, the, Nashville, country music and country stardom had to feel the same way. Would you, where did that audacity come from to think that you could break out of Amarillo and, and, and make something of yourself in music? Well, so I had what, what looking back on it, was actually a really lucky break. At the time, I was devastated by it. I did not really want to leave Texas. I wanted to stay there and spend my whole life there. But my mother was born and raised in dixon tennessee which is about 45 miles outside of nashville so when i was getting into high school they wanted to move to tennessee so i was like well that sucks you know all my friends that were going into high school now i'm leaving you know and so we moved to tennessee and it never dawned on me that people made money playing guitars and singing or whatever i was obviously a huge fan of music i would spend my last nickel on you know it, the every Ricky Skaggs, you know, cassette I could get, every George Strait, every gar, you know, everything I get my hands on, but just as a fan. But I get out to Tennessee, and I remember meeting this one kid, and became friends with him. And I said, "What does your dad do?" He goes, "He drives Ricky Skaggs' bus." <laughs> and, I, and I thought to myself, "Ricky Skaggs rides on a bus? What do you mean? Like I'm thinking like a school bus?" <laughs> he goes, "No, you know those big fancy buses where they they go on tour." And I went, "Oh." I said, so your dad knows Ricky Skaggs? He goes, my dad drives Ricky Skaggs. And it just blew my mind that I was one step or two steps removed from somebody that I considered to be an absolute hero in music, Ricky Skaggs. And that got me thinking, wow, I guess I am fairly close to Nashville. But, you know, being 16, 17 years old, what are you going to do about it? Nothing at that age. But my attitude about things has always been the same. And I said, yeah, but I'd still like to get out, get out there and, and hear some of these people play. And I start looking in the paper and seeing the Judy Martin talent contest. So this lady named Judy Martin was running four or five talent contests around Nashville and, and all these dive bars and hockey comps. And so I went and entered one at uh, 16 years old. And I walked up to Aaron. He goes, are you 21? I went, no, I'm 16. She goes, we, I'm not supposed to let you in unless you're 21, but I tell you what, since you drove all the way here, you sit right next to me and drink this can of Coca-Cola <laughs> in the can, keep it in the can, and I'll let you sing. So that night I'm sitting there watching, and Tracy Lawrence got up that night. Wow. Trace Atkins got up that night. All these people that hadn't gotten deals yet all showed up, and I went, good God, I can't do that. But I sang anyway, and they all patted me on the back and said, good job, kid. And that gave me some confidence, like, wow, that was exciting. And so, I, you know, even before I was old enough to do it, I just started singing on any mic anywhere that anybody would let me get on. That, that was the spark that ignited the fire. Yeah, I think walking into a place like that, um, you know, 
I'm not supposed to be there. I'm not allowed to be there, but they let me in anyway. And then singing a song and watching the, the real veteran guys look at me and go, wow, this kid's pretty good. And telling me that I went, dad gum, maybe I am good. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't know if I was good or not, but they, they kind of gave me the check mark and that fired me up to, to really start digging deeper on it, which is what led me to audition for the theme park Opryland back when that was still around, which I wish it still was around today. Mm-hmm. But I auditioned for that in my senior year of high school and got a job there. So I knew the second I got out of high school, I'd be working at Opryland. And uh, that was exciting. And I thought, well, I'll go to college after that. But at Opryland, I met some guys that uh, made me an offer I couldn't turn down. Changed my whole trajectory of my life. That was the guys in Lone Star. Right. Is that when you started thinking uh, more seriously about songwriting, or was that even on your radar at that point? Did songwriting become sort of like necessary because you were in a band and you had to contribute something besides just your voice? That's a great question. So, you know, before Lone Star got a record deal, we were touring 250, 300 days a year. And so I'm out on the road with guys, you know, Dean Sams, Richie McDonald, these guys who were about 10, 12 years older than me who did write songs. And, you know, you're sitting in a hotel and they're like, hey, you want to write a song? I'm like, sure. And so I, I started watching these guys write a little bit. And then we got a record deal. You get a record deal, you kind of get a, a default publishing deal along with it. And so record deal, we get a publish, we all get publishing deals. And that's when I walked into the very first publisher place ever, which was with Don Cook. So if you look that name up, that mm-hmm. guy was responsible for really the 90s sound, the 90s boom, a lot of it. You know, boot scooting, buggy, all that stuff. I mean, just huge producer. And he was producing Lone Star. So you walk in with Don Cook, and he's introducing you to everybody. Here's Chris Waters. Here's Larry Boone. Here's Paul Nelson, Chick Reigns, Mark Sanders, Sharon Vaughn, all these massive people that at that time were writing all the hits, writing all the greatest stuff. And then you get to sit in a room and write with those people. So really, I hadn't deserved to earn the right to be in the room with those people, but I got a chance to be in there because I had a record deal. And that's when I knew I had to take full advantage of that situation and learn as fast as I could uh, to become an effective writer. Those were really my professors. They were my mentors. And that's about the time that you you saw, oh, wait, I can I can do both. You, you I'm sure you obviously recognize mm-hmm. that you had some ability. I love a quote from you. Um, I may not die an artist, but I will die a songwriter. You didn't have that mm-hmm. mindset when you first got to Nashville, did you? No, because I didn't even, like I said, I, it, it was shocking to me to think that all these people I'd grown up listening to live just a few miles down the road. Like, I just couldn't even believe that. It seemed impossible. Like you said, Oz, you know, honky tonk Oz is right down the street. (laughs) Uh, But, but listen, I grew up in a double wide trailer in Texas. I have a high school diploma and that, and the American dream in my back pocket. And that's it. So for me, if I had a big idea or something I thought I was capable of, the American dream tells me I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not the right to be happy, the right to pursue it. That was pounded into my head my whole life from my dad, from my granddaddy who fought in World War II. He said, there's no, he said, America doesn't know you anything, son, but it offers you everything. Go, you got a big idea and you're willing to work for it. You never know. And that just stuck with me. So I see myself now standing in a room with iconic songwriters and I'm like 20, 21. I don't know anything about it. 
So what I did is, which was just an instinctive move, but it's wound up being something that I, I advise young writers to always do. And that is don't ever show up in a room with a songwriter who's better than you unless you have notebooks full of titles, half-written songs, choruses, melodies. I mean, you need to have a mountain of material when you walk in. And that's what I did. I walked in, I'd sit down with, you know, Don Cook. And he'd go, what do you want to write? I go, well, I've got four or five choruses. And he goes, you do? Well, play them for me. And I'd play him four or five choruses. And he'd go, hey, that one was good. Let's write that. And not knowing what I was doing, what that actually said to Don Cook is what? This kid has respect for me as a senior writer, as his superior, because he didn't walk in going, hey, Don, uh, give me your best chorus and let's write it. No, that's not how it goes. It goes the other way. The, the junior is supposed to bring the ideas so that so the, the expert's not burning his ideas on somebody who may not be able to write. You know, so I tell young writers, do never walk into a room, really with anybody, but especially somebody that way outranks you as a, as a songwriter, never walk in and, and use their idea. It should always be coming from your pencil. You almost, like, it's not word for word, but your sentiments are exactly, I talked to Lee Thomas Miller a while ago, and uh, he was talking about being a new songwriter and, and meeting with these established songwriters, and he said they would look at you like, okay, what'd you bring? And he had a notebook full of ideas, and he'd just thumb mm-hmm. through, don't like that one, don't like that one, maybe that, and he says, yep. you want me to keep going? I could go all day. So, he, you, <laughs> I mean, you're just backing that up. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it says two things about that junior rider. One, that they respect the senior rider because they're bringing their own ideas instead of expecting the big rider to give them an idea. And two, that, that that young songwriter is serious about what they're doing because if you see notebooks full of ideas and and you know work tape after work tape after work tape of melodies and choruses, you know that that person's been spending thousands of hours thinking and writing and they're serious about the craft which gives the the senior writer a lot of confidence in this person like wow you're serious about it because a lot of people come through town especially artists that get publishing deals and they're writing for their new record and they're not really songwriters and that's okay you don't have to be a songwriter but a lot of them i've sat with walk in and they say i go what do you want to sing and they go i don't know what do you think i should sing I go, that's the wrong answer. You know, you're you're called an artist. That means you're supposed to say something that only you would say it like that. Mm-hmm. It's art. You know, there's no redundancy in true art. You know, there's there's no there's no two great paintings that are exactly the same or, or sculptures or anything else. Well, same thing goes with with a song. And so, I'd say it's probably maybe two or three out of ten new ones that I run into show up with the notebooks, show up with all the stuff. So when I get a chance to get the word out there, like a podcast like this, that maybe they're listening to that is number one. I don't care if all your ideas are terrible, bring them. You got to show up with something and and that will at least get you an invite back. If you show up with nothing, it's going to be the last time you write with that writer more than likely. I only have about 
12, 13 minutes left with you, so I want to I want to skip ahead. There's so many questions I want to ask you, but let's let's skip ahead to you had some success with Lone Star, and it was it was very mainstream success. They had they had some some great songs mm-hmm. in the '90s when you were with them, and you had a couple of hits. Um, and then it, you kind of went off the radar, and you were you were writing and you were doing the music mafia thing in, in Nashville, and then you met up with with Big Kenny, and um, what you guys created. You were just talking about, you know, art is you 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 can't recreate it. It's it's its own thing. What you guys did with that first Big and Rich album was kick the artistic doors in in Nashville, and I don't think it's ever been the same. Brothers and sisters, we're here for one reason and one reason alone: to share our love of music. I present to you country music without prejudice. That album is is still one of my all-time favorites because it's so wildly creative and it is so full of bravado and, and... balls you know but you guys were not you could tell you went in and you were like fearless on that album and just where did that kind of chutzpah come from because i think the tendency of most people especially if you're kind of like in the in-between stages you know maybe lay back and and play it a little conservatively which ironically Mm -hmm. i mean you're a pretty well-known conservative but man you went crazy with that album and it's still today it, it feels fresh every time i plug it in well, I think what you were looking at there was a couple of guys who had been, uh, who had been, who had failed uh, several times in a row. Kenny had failed at what he was trying to do in the rock world. You know, Lone Star fired me. I did a solo deal right after that. I put out two singles. They both stiffed. I lost that record deal. Lost my publishing deal. You know, so I'm going. Okay, I failed in a band. I failed as a solo act. What's left? When then I run into Big Kenny, and he's going, well, I failed. I had a band. That didn't work. I was solo. That didn't work either. He goes, so we should just say exactly what we want to, and if they don't like it, to hell with it, because at least we'll like it. I said, I, you know what? At this point, what does it even matter? I mean, let's just, let's just what's in our heads, put it on, put it on tape and let them hear it. They're probably going to hate it. But at least we'll have some fun. We'll have some drinks. It'll be fun. We'll invite some girls over, right? It's like, hey, we can always figure out a way to make it a party. And so we came at that thing with no filters whatsoever. And I think it was one of the, maybe the first record that was an example of the internet age of music, where you are now being exposed to all different genres at the cl- and with a click. Yes. It's not just what stations are in your hometown anymore. It's everything on demand whenever you want it. And so you're hearing all kinds of music and you've grown, you've spent several years with it like that. And to me, it was like, I like back in black ACDC and I like Ricky Skaggs. How do I put those two sounds together? Well, if you go listen to Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy, that is a back in black kind of track Mm -hmm. with a rolling banjo and a fiddle. Like you'd hear in Ricky Skaggs' band. It is a combo of those two things with the most insane lyrics anybody's ever put together. Cause you gotta be a little nuts to even say that mm-hmm. much less present it to people. Right. So, you know, I think I finally found a, a guy, you know, who's a way different than me 
and I'm way different than him. But what we have in common is number one, work ethic, but number two, creativity is king. If it turns me on when I hear it, if I get wound up over that lyric or that sound or whatever that is, then that's a thumbs up. I don't care if it fits or not with whatever's going on in Nashville. You know, we were told, that's not country. We don't know what you're doing. That's, you know, this is a joke. You know, we got all kinds of terrible reviews. Save Horse Ride a Cowboy never went top ten. Well, I walk into the room, passing out hundred dollar bills, and it kills and it thrills like the horns on my Silverado grill. And I buy the bar, double round the crown, and everybody's getting down in this town. Ain't never gonna be the same. Cause I saddle up my horse and I ride into the city. I make a lot of noise cause the girls they are so pretty. Riding up and down Broadway on my own studly Roy and the girls say, Save a horse, ride a cowboy. Everybody says, Save a horse, ride a cowboy. Well, I don't People don't realize that we've only had one number one single. In our whole career, but we've got all these songs that everybody knows the words to. Can I tell you so something? I don't think we were back when yeah. that one, when Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy was huge. I've, I've been at the same same station for twenty eight years. Uh, we didn't play it until it w- had been out for <laughs> a long time. Our program director was freaked <laughs> freaked out by it. Right. <laughs> well, so the the week that Horse of a Different Color went number one on the sales chart, I think we sold like one hundred and thirty thousand records that week was the same exact week that it died at Country Radio for lack of good research. Wow. And so that's when I understood that, and I also tell artists and writers this, the industry does not dictate your art. Your art dictates to the industry. If you've got enough nuts to do that, I mean, because they're all going to tell you, you need to sound like this, you need to talk about that, you need to wear this, you need to go do this, X, Y, Z, this is the formula that works. Well, if that if that fits you, then that's fine. If that doesn't fit you, don't do that. You know, cut your own path. You know, I've said before that the music industry is like a sidewinder snake. You know, it goes left to right to left to right, just like a sidewinder. And an artist is supposed to cut a straight line. You know, they cut a straight line, and, and that, that sidewinder, when it crosses over that straight line, you're popular. When it goes out to the far edges of it, mm-hmm. the phone's not ringing. Then it, what does it do? It comes back around and boom, you're hot again. Hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard. <laughs> now we could go down a list of people yeah. that are just, that's what they do. And I, I think that's that's what Big and Rich was and is and will always be. We're just that kind of an act. Jesus, take me away, then take me farther. Surround me now And hold, hold, hold me Jesus, take me away Then take me farther Surround me now And hold, hold, hold me 
same time, you had these songs. It, I think the, the legend is you had over 800 songs, and you run into this uh, this, this young kid at, I think it was your, your publishing house or whatever, and mm-hmm. he'd heard some of the songs, and, and he was like, hey, can I cut some of those? And when you talk about, like, being your own artist and, and sounding different, having something that was completely different, that's what this young man would become. But initially, tell this story. You didn't even know who mm-hmm. this guy was or if you should give him a single song. Yeah, so this kid walks up and he goes, hey, I'm, I'm new in town. I, um, I'm, I'm showcasing for some record companies, and I like some of your, I've heard some of your demos. Man, I'd like to cut them. I go, that's cool. Which ones do you like? And he goes, Amarillo Sky, Johnny Cash, Why? I mean, he starts going down this list. I'm like, well, you got good taste in songs because those are some of my absolute favorite songs I've ever written. And I'm going, I said, who are you again? He goes, my name's Jason Aldean. <laughs> he said, I think I'm going to get signed to this uh, this new label called Broken Bow. And I went, Broken what? And I'm thinking to myself, why would you call a record Broken Anything? Mm-hmm. And then you find out it's financed by a guy who's not even in the industry. And I'm going, this doesn't sound like a real strong bet. But I liked him. I like Jason. He was dead serious about what he was doing. I said, you know what, man? Cut him. That's an honor that you would, you know, put your career out there using my songs. Absolutely. Go cut him. Good luck, buddy. Well, that was a good call. Because next thing you know, Jason Aldean caught her in a match. You like the way that sounds? Redneck Woman and the whole Gretchen Wilson thing. I'll give you a, give you a, a crazy number. I believe it was April of 2004. Save a Horse, Pick Town, and Redneck Woman all went for ads that month. <laughs> wow. Same month. Well, I ain't never been to Barbie Dow time. No, I can't swig that sweet champagne. I'd rather drink beer all night in a tavern or in a honky tonk. the redneck girls like me. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! Were 
you, uh, you could have been like, I guess, one of two ways. You could have been like, yeah, about time, or holy hell, I did this right. Uh, it was, I was shocked that those songs were actually hitting. I knew the public would like them. I just didn't think they'd ever get to hear them. Right. So I didn't think, number one, Music Row would let them get out. And if they did, I didn't think radio would play them. Mm-hmm. I was extremely jaded. You got to remember, I'd already been in the business for a decade, you know, and had failed on a lot of levels. But when they started actually hitting, and I went, good God, well, if they like that, I can write a bunch more of those. And so, you know, I've, I've always told artists this as well. You know, when things don't go your way and you're really banged up and you're dealing with a lot of defeat, remember, as long as you've got a pencil and a blank sheet of paper, you're still in the game. A pencil and a blank sheet of paper. When I lost that, when Lone Star fires me. I lose the solo deal. There's about four or five years before Big and Rich becomes anything. And those four or five years, all it was was pencil and paper, and that's it. And I'm writing hundreds and sometimes got up over a couple thousand songs that I wrote. And out of that catalog of, of music I had written, that wound up being all the songs that got recorded that put me at, you know, ASCAP Artist Writer of the Year for three years in a row. Wow. It wasn't the songs I was writing those three years. It was the songs I, I had piled up the four or five years prior to that. Well, another quote that I've got written down from you is, nobody can limit how hard you work. And you just underscored that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like I said, I mean, the American dream, right? I mean, that that's why I'm such a fierce, um, opinionated, loud guy when it comes to policies or anything I see out there that I think hinder life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, to me, what Americans have in common is the fact that we have the right to pursue happiness. And I think there's there's a, a section of, of folks out there that say, no, you have the right to be happy. You have the right to be successful. But it doesn't say that anywhere. And I think there's integrity in hard work. And if you don't fail and fail a bunch of times, you're never going to understand how to handle success if you ever have it. You won't even know what that, you won't know, have any appreciation for it. Failure is fine. Failure is fine as long as it doesn't stop you. Do you think working without a net is the best um, inspiration? <laughs> well, it, uh, it, uh, working without a net, you know that it's do or die. I mean, it's, you know, there's nothing to quote fall back on. It'll help you focus. <laughs> it, it'll help you focus. And I, I, another thing I tell young artists and writers is country music is not a hobby. It's not a hobby. Not if you want to do it for 25 years. Like if you want to do it for a long time at a relevant level, you better get deadly serious about it. You better go back and learn the decades of country music that came before you. You need to go look up the great records, go listen to them, soak them up, get them into your subconscious. You know, don't compare yourself to your contemporaries, to your current people that you're out there competing with. Don't say, well, I'm great compared to these folks. Well, are you great compared to the greatest of all time? The answer to that will always be no, I'm not. So set the bar where they set the bar. You know, am I great compared to this guy? Yeah, I'm pretty good compared to that guy. Are you good compared to Johnny Cash? No. (laughs) Okay. Well, then hang Johnny Cash pictures on your wall and remind yourself of who was the greatest of all time, and you'll never stop working and never stop getting better. John Rich, thank you so much. I know you've got to run. Um, man, I, I just extend the invite now. I would love to have you back on for another half hour, 45 minutes, five minutes. It doesn't matter. You're fantastic <laughs> to talk to, and I think that what you're sharing is 
absolutely invaluable advice, whether you want to be a songwriter, a singer, or both. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I, I would love to jump back on. Anybody hearing this that is a songwriter or a singer, everything I just said is from experience. It's not my opinion. I've seen it work, and I've seen the other side of it, too, where it didn't work. You've you got to love it. You've got to love it so much that that you just de- you basically dedicate your life to it for a section of your life. So <laughs> you get great, and then you can roll. Right on. Thank you so much. Thanks, brother. Good talking with you. Take care. Bye-bye. See your mama and the candles and the tears and roses. I see your daddy walk his daughter down the aisle. And my knees start to tremble as I tell the preacher, don't she look beautiful tonight? All the wonderful Words in my head I've been thinking You know I want to say them all just right I lift your veil Angels start singing Such a heavenly sign Yeah Lost in This month's edition of Write You a Song. We want to thank John Rich for joining us. Next month, a guy that has one of the most eclectic personal and musical backgrounds of any guest we've had on this podcast. You are unstoppable. In my daughter's eyes, everyone is equal. Then God whispered your name, and that's when everything changed. James T. Slater talks with us and even performs a little bit next time on Write You a Song. I can see the sunshine for the first time in a while. A girl, it's like I've been baptized by the warmth of your smile. We'll call it fate of fate. We'll call it crazy either way. It's amazing, amazing God whispered your name That's when everything changed